This is Rate of Change, a podcast from Duke Engineering dedicated to the ingenious ways engineers are solving some of society's toughest problems. I'm Michaela Kane. It's hard to imagine a time when smartwatches weren't a common accessory decorating people's wrists. What was once a tool used almost exclusively by serious athletes and self-proclaimed weekend warriors has since transformed into an everyday tool that can provide information about heart rates, daily step counts, and workout statistics to the user. They can also provide helpful, if sometimes annoying, nudges telling you to get moving if you've been sedentary for most of the day. Most people are content with the basic knowledge these devices can provide about their health. But Jesse Lynn Dunn, an assistant professor of biomedical engineering and biostatistics and bioinformatics at Duke University, is aiming to explore how the data from these tools can help develop new methods of disease prevention, detection, and treatment. Dunn accomplishes this work with her team, which makes up the Big Ideas Lab at Duke. Name it actually stands for something. Um, it's the Biomedical Informatics Group. Um, and the ideas is that we're integrating data engineering and analytics. Um, and, and really what we're doing is we're working across multiple different disease areas with the goal of developing uh, what we call digital biomarkers. So um, methods of monitoring health and disease using less traditional data sources than somebody going into the clinic at you know a single visit per year maybe and um, getting a physical and workup done at that one time. What we're hoping to do is use more continuous methods of monitoring, whether that's through wearable devices or mobile devices. Uh, we also do a bit of work with biomolecular data and um, other types of biomolecular sensors. Um, yeah, and so our goal is really to just bring all of this data and technology together to better be able to predict um, illness states. So can you, can you give me an example of, I guess, what that would look like, um, whether it's like one disease or just like for an average patient, what would that involve? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the projects that we've been working on for a little over a year has been um, the pre-diabetes detection project. Um, we were funded through uh, Duke Medex and the CTSA um, to essentially try to develop methods using more uh, commonly available wearables like an Apple Watch or Fitbit um, that would actually be able to pick up prediabetes. So that's kind of the, the big idea, if you will. Um, and, um, you know, the, the way that we're doing that is actually by using devices that are a little bit more complex um, than the actual common consumer devices. Uh, but the goal is that we would have a non-invasive method of being able to detect who is likely to have prediabetes or be at risk of developing either pre or type two diabetes. Um, and the reason that this is such an important area for us is that actually the um, one third of the US population is prediabetic. Um, and 90% of those people who are pre-diabetic don't actually know that they're pre-diabetic. Um, so that's a really scary stat that, um, you know, without people having an appropriate diagnosis, they will never know that they should be making some sort of lifestyle change to prevent the onset of type 2 diabetes. So the earlier that we can catch this, actually, pre-diabetes is reversible, um, but people need to know that they have it. According to Dunn, the team uses both data-driven methods and hypothesis-driven methods to develop these digital biomarkers. On the data-driven side of things, the team is focused on developing machine learning algorithms that can parse through huge amounts of data from different sensors and create predictions about who may be sick with certain illnesses. 
Um, on the other side of the coin, um, we also have hypothesis-driven methods where we know that there are physiologic changes that take place when somebody has um, pre or type two diabetes. For example, there's some damage to the autonomic nervous system uh, that can take place, and that represents by various different physiologic changes. Uh, one of those is changes in heart rate variability, and so we're looking at how that might relate to diabetic status. The ability to create these biomarkers that can be tracked with common wearable devices also addresses an important gap in healthcare knowledge, which is long-term health monitoring. This is especially helpful for people who are unable to see a doctor on a regular basis. So I think one of the major challenges with our current healthcare system is that people very sporadically go into the clinic and they often go into the clinic when something is wrong, right? So we don't actually get a good picture of what health and illness look like outside of that time when somebody's physically present in the clinic. And so these wearable sensors and, and mobile sensors enable continuous monitoring. So we're actually getting a picture of somebody's physiology 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and another key point here is that there's actually circadian differences in our physiology. So if you go to a doctor's appointment um, first thing in the morning one year, and then at the end of the day another year, those are actually not directly comparable because your body changes over the course of the day and also changes over time. So it's very difficult to be able to understand somebody's kind of baseline health with only these sporadic pieces of information. Having a comprehensive picture of someone's baseline helps doctors identify when something is wrong. And Dunn and her team are optimistic that wearable technology can act as a solution to this issue and provide valuable medical insight to both doctors and patients. But before this is possible, Dunn and her collaborators across the digital medicine world are also working to ensure that both common smartwatches and clinical sensors are as accurate and useful as possible. We've actually been heavily involved with a lot of the initiatives um, going on in the digital health and di digital medicine space um, to ensure that tools are used in a way that we, we call fit for purpose. Um, the, the challenge here is that the tools are incredibly useful. So your standard consumer smartwatch can tell you a lot about your heart measurements, your um, physical activity, your sleep, um, and lots of researchers have realized this and have started to integrate them into clinical studies and clinical trials. The challenge though is that there's no set standards on um, information that needs to be kind of um, measured or released about these devices to ensure that the measurements that are coming off of them are accurate enough to be used in, for clinical purposes. To help standardize the data collected from smartwatches and other devices, Dunn and a team of researchers across digital medicine proposed a V3 framework that appeared in Nature Digital Medicine. And their three-step process, engineers would verify, analytically validate, and then clinically validate the sensors, algorithms, and data produced by wearables and other devices to identify any limitations in their accuracy. In our lab, we've applied that framework um, specifically to look at how skin tone and physical activity affect the accuracy of heart rate monitors um, that are optically based. Fitness trackers currently measure heart rate using a process called photoplasmography, or PPG. 
This involves shining a specific wavelength of light, which usually appears green, from a pulse oximeter sensor on the underside of the device where it touches the skin on the wrist. As the light illuminates the tissue, the pulse oximeter measures changes in light absorption and the device then uses this data to generate a heart rate measurement. But the lab had seen anecdotal evidence that suggested that skin tone could affect the accuracy of the PPG sensors as melanin, which tones our skin, could also absorb this green light. So we really wanted to see systematically, is, is this true? Is there evidence for this? And we had even seen that some of the wearable device companies that um, we were evaluating their devices had in their um, user materials, these devices will not work as well in darker skin tones. And to us, that was shocking. Um, you know, if we're developing these technologies to work for people who may not be able to come into the clinic, a large portion of those people may have darker skin and we need this technology to work for everyone. Mm -hmm. So we designed this study um, with that in mind and we um, looked across the Fitzpatrick skin tone scale. So essentially that we had um, several different skin tone categories from uh, lightest skin, which is very low melanin content, to darkest skin with highest melanin content. The team explored the accuracy of several different commercial devices, including the Fitbit, the Apple Watch, a Garmin watch, and the Show Me Me Band, as well as research-grade devices like the Empatica E4 and the BioVotion. And, and, and what we saw actually, we were, we were glad to see that there were not significant differences in the accuracy of the heart rate from the PPG sensor across the different skin tones. But throughout this process, we had people go through different levels, uh, different types of activities, because there was a potential that there was some interaction between skin tone and type of activity. And we did see that in fact, with different, um, with higher levels of physical activity, that the heart rate was less accurate. In fact, on average, it was up to 30% less accurate um, than heart rate at, at rest. Um, so, so that's definitely um, a big problem when we think about how we're using the data from these devices. So mm -hmm. overall, it seems like there's been a lot of um, sort of algorithmic methods to address the potential skin tone issue, but we still don't have algorithms to address the movement issue. In addition to studying the physical and algorithmic limitations of these devices, Dan is also exploring how potential biases in data collection may affect how researchers can identify biomarkers for a variety of diseases. There are a lot of communities that are not typically represented in a lot of these larger scale wearable devices studies because a lot of the studies are designed as a sort of bring your own device study. And we know that the people who would typically buy a device are not necessarily representative of the overall U.S. population and are particularly not representative of underserved communities. So the problem with that is that when we're developing these digital biomarkers, they are based on predictive algorithms. So like I mentioned, we have these um, data-driven approaches and we have these hypothesis-driven approaches. When we're developing data-driven approaches to making predictions, the data is critical. If we don't have data that represents all people, then our algorithms are only as good as the data that we put into them. And so that becomes really dangerous when we think about who these populations are that are um, represented in the studies that are developing these new technologies, because all of a sudden it's very easy to develop a technology that works for some, but not for others. Um, so it is really critical that we have this 
you know, um, appropriate representation of all groups in our data sets. All of this work has helped to inform and set up the lab's newest research project called Identify. Originally launched in early April, Identify was designed to explore how data collected from smartphones and smartwatches could help determine whether or not device users have COVID-19, which is the disease caused by the novel coronavirus. Um, so what we want to do is we want to be able to detect, even before somebody might know that they have a COVID-19 infection, that they're sick. And the idea there, one, is obviously to prevent the spread, right? So if somebody knows that they have the infection, um, they won't be spreading it to their family or community members. Um, they would know to quarantine. They would know that they should probably get in touch with their doctor and let them know what's going on. Um, and then the other piece is that we're hoping to learn more about what the trajectory of infection looks like. Different people have very different outcomes from COVID infection. We've seen that some people, um, you know, are completely asymptomatic. They have uh, sort of no indication at all that they've been infected. Um, and what's even uh, scarier about that is actually some of those people do have physiologic changes that they just themselves weren't able to detect. Um, and so they might have some lung damage or some other sort of damage that they themselves don't even feel. Um, so it would be important to know if they've had an infection. And then there's uh, the other dramatic end of the spectrum where this disease is really lethal for a lot of um, underserved communities, uh, people from communities of color, they have significantly worse outcomes. They have higher rates of infection um, due to higher risk living or working environments. Um, a lot of times these um, communities have higher comorbidities. So they have other diseases like diabetes and cardiovascular disease um, that can compound the danger of COVID. So there's a lot there that really needs to be examined and uncovered. And the sooner that we can understand what um, mobile and wearable sensors can tell us about the disease, the sooner we can develop better interventions. In the first phase of Identify, the team launched the Identify.org website, where people can sign up and input their relevant demographics and medical information. The study then involves a daily survey, which can be delivered by text, email, or through the Identify app, which asks two simple questions. The first question asks if the participant has been in contact with anyone outside of their household and if they've been maintaining social distancing. And the second question asks if they feel sick. If they say that they do feel sick, the survey then expands to ask about specific symptoms. Participants are also asked to share biometric data from their smartphones and smartwatches. The team then matches the biometric data with answers from the survey questions and they'll use the relationship between reported symptoms and any changes in the biometric data to begin to develop biomarkers for COVID-19. But because we have this problem with the, this bring your own device uh, research model, where we've actually been working on getting um, device donations and devices purchased through some grant funding um, to be able to hand out devices to people from underserved communities. So we're currently in the process of that. Um, we've been working with folks in the CTSA and the mobile app gateway um, and also the VA to better engage um, with the community and get devices to people who otherwise wouldn't have them. The Identify team also developed a plan to target recruitment of people that have a higher risk of contracting the disease, including delivery drivers, grocery store workers, hospital cleaning and cafeteria staff, and nurse aides. 
They're also exploring how they can deploy watches in high-density housing areas like nursing homes, college dorms, military barracks, and homeless shelters. If COVID-identify is successful, it would be a non-invasive and accessible tool that can help control the spread of the coronavirus. The project also speaks to the lab's larger goals of arming healthcare professionals with accessible tools and information to detect illnesses early, which helps doctors save more lives. I think one of the ideas here is also to provide some uh, patient empowerment or even just person empowerment, right? Because I think part of, of the idea here is that if we can provide health insights, those are useful to clinicians to help them care for their patients, but those are also useful to us as individuals to know things about our health and to be able to understand what to do with health recommendations. So what we're trying to do here is really close the loop on this healthcare system to make sure that people have access to information about their health and also access to what comes next. Um, you know, what, what kind of actions can they take to potentially reverse their prediabetes, for example. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Rate of Change. Remember to follow us on social media for updates and be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening and stay safe.